the Christian Sabbath that might look different from one person to the next and one family to the next, the Lord's Day is nevertheless to be observed. And I understand that I am somewhat preaching to the choir because you are here on the Lord's Day to worship the Lord. A day to remember Christ. Christ Himself said, Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And every Sunday that we come to worship the Lord, we are reminded of Christ and the Sabbath rest that we have in Him. Therefore, the Lord's Day is embedded in the Sabbath principle in the creation ordinance. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. Johns County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I am preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace— It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So, if you are interested in a confessional Reformed Church plant intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than 3 miles from Interstate 95 and less than 2 miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.ChristReformedCC.com. Also, for access to more sermons, as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.PastorAndrewSmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and be turning again to the Gospel of Mark. This morning we want to look at Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28, the title of the message, Lord, even of the Sabbath. Lord, even of the Sabbath. Mark chapter 2. And I want to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word when you find your place. Allow me to read our text, then we'll ask for the Lord's help before we study God's Word together. Beginning in verse 23, Mark writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. One Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any, but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is God's authoritative, inspired, inerrant word. Please be seated as we bow for prayer. Our Father, we come before Your Word this day, pleading with You that You would give us eyes to see Your truth. We hold in our hands the very Word of the living God. And we have placed before us our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is Lord over all things, even of the Sabbath. Father, help our hearts and our minds to be submissive to Him. Help our lives to be submissive to our Lord and our King. 
as we study this passage and then leave this place. Minister to our hearts by the power of your blessed Holy Spirit who is with us and in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you have been able to see as we study the Gospel of Mark, controversy swirled in the life of our Lord, really ever since the beginning of His ministry, right in the early stages of it. We have seen that what began as an unspoken word of criticism in the hearts of the scribes and Pharisees, that one particular day in the house of Jesus, when He told the paralytic who was lowered from the roof, Son, your sins are forgiven. From that very day, the criticism in the hearts of the Pharisees would then grow into outspoken criticism of Christ. And not only that, but outspoken plots to destroy the life of our Lord. In fact, all of these controversies that began with the Pharisees picking a fight with Jesus would be escalated by our Lord. Rather than apologizing or backing down from His words or His actions, Jesus would use these opportunities of confrontation to escalate the confrontation and thereby expose the dead traditionalism and legalism and works-oriented salvation of the religious leaders. Each incident, beginning with Jesus' exposure of their thoughts in His own house where He basically laid before everyone who was there that day that they were critical of Him because He said He had authority to forgive sins, leading all the way to the calling of Matthew the tax collector and having table fellowship with Matthew and other tax collectors and other sinners, to not requiring His disciples to fast, but actually ordering them to feast. All of that built tension between Jesus and the religious elite. And Jesus would add to that fire. Jesus' words, His responses to their questioning of Him was like pouring lighter fluid on a fire as Jesus fed the controversy. The next two incidents reveal to us one incident, verses 23 through 28, and another incident, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, a controversy surrounding Sabbath observance. All of this concludes, I want you to note in chapter 3 and verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. That's how these incidents end. What was the topic? That proverbially speaking was the straw that broke the camel's back. What theological and practical issue did the religious leaders despise more than anything about our Lord? Well, the answer is found in these next two accounts. It was their view that Jesus did not properly observe the Sabbath. Most world religions venerate places. For example, Islam venerates Mecca, and even Judaism venerates Jerusalem. But Judaism is a religion that not only venerates a place, it is a religion that venerates time itself, and a day in particular, namely the Sabbath. There is no other thing considered more holy to Jews than the Sabbath day. In fact, during the Maccabean Revolt, some 200 years before Jesus' conflicts with the religious leaders, there was a group of people who were the predecessors to the Pharisees that were so zealous not to do anything on the Sabbath that when Antiochus Epiphanes was poised to attack Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, they said at first that they refused to defend themselves because they honored the Sabbath in such a zealous way. Out of principle, they wouldn't even pick up a sword and defend themselves, they said, because that was to bring dishonor to the Sabbath. Now, there are many well-meaning Christians who believe that the Sabbath principle itself was first established at Mount Sinai as part of the Decalogue and has since passed away with the coming of the New Covenant. These folks will argue since the Fourth Commandment is the only one out of the Ten Commandments that is not explicitly repeated in the New Testament, then it stands to reason that the Fourth Commandment has passed away. I want to go on record as saying that I think 
such Christians are wrong in their understanding of Scripture. Because first of all, the principle of the Sabbath, although it might not explicitly be mentioned in the New Testament, it is implicitly mentioned in the New Testament. And furthermore, do we really want to say that under the New Covenant, we only have nine commandments as opposed to ten? That's a very dangerous thing to say when we affirm that the Ten Commandments are the moral law of God that flow from God's holy character, and God's character never changes, so how can His Ten Commandments change? In fact, I would go even beyond that to say that not only are Christians obligated to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy, of course, that being Sunday now, the Christian Sabbath, not Saturday, the last day of the week, but the first day of the week, but I would go on record as saying that I think it is actually, actually an issue of morality that every man, woman, boy, and girl, regardless of whether they are a Christian or not, are obligated to keep the Sabbath because it is a matter of God's moral law. Now, with all of that being said, I think that Scripture teaches from the beginning the honoring of the Sabbath as a creation ordinance. If you take your Bibles and turn back with me to Genesis chapter 2... Scripture is clear about this. Verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Verse 2 of Genesis 2, And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. Verse 3, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. The principle of 1 and 7 remains true even in New Testament Times The apostles, of course, honored our Lord's resurrection by making the first day of the week the Christian Sabbath. And we understand that all the ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law has been fulfilled in Christ. So what we do on Sunday, the Lord's Day, or if you want to call it the Christian Sabbath, that is fine, is vastly different than Jewish observance of the Sabbath. But it is nevertheless wrong to say the fourth commandment no longer applies to Christians in the New Covenant. It does apply in terms of the first day of the week on the Lord's Day, a day of God set aside to worship God with God's people, to read His Word, to listen to the preaching of His Word, to pray with God's people, to sing with God's people, a day of rest to take a time out from the normal chaos of the normal work week and to reflect upon God's goodness and grace through Christ and look forward to the eternal rest that we have in Him. And while it is true that the head of each home must determine the particulars of how to observe the Christian Sabbath that might look different from one person to the next and one family to the next, the Lord's Day is nevertheless to be observed. And I understand that I am somewhat preaching to the choir because you are here on the Lord's Day to worship the Lord. A day to remember Christ. Christ Himself said, Come to Me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And every Sunday that we come to worship the Lord, we are reminded of Christ and the Sabbath rest that we have in Him. Therefore, the Lord's Day is embedded in the Sabbath principle in the creation ordinance. But with all of that being said, like all of God's good gifts, there are always super-religious people that want to pervert God's commandments. And that was the Pharisees. They twisted the purpose of the Sabbath for their own selfish reasons. All Jews agreed the Sabbath was holy, that it was a day of rest. But in Jewish history, debates began to circulate regarding what it meant to work and not work on the Sabbath. And before you know it, lists began to spring up, such as a one found in the book of Jubilees, or another list in a, in a document called the Damascus Document, which was a document of the Qumran community. And as time passed, more lists were made until there was a fuller definition of what it meant to not work on the Sabbath found in the Mishnah. The Pharisees' understanding of Sabbath observance during their days of conflict with Jesus would have been rooted in their understanding of all the rules and regulations in the Mishnah. The Mishnah was written with the goal of leaving no stone unturned by legislating every conceivable circumstance one might find themselves in 
on the Sabbath day in that particular section of the Mishnah. There were 39 prohibitions detailing various scenarios that were then worked out in sort of a case law fashion. Following this came two other documents that elaborated on ways to find loopholes regarding the more inconvenient restrictions. All of it was a game. This is what you need to understand in hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Such Sabbath prohibitions were impossible to follow. They were an endless labyrinth of ridiculous requirements, leaving one dizzy just as they read them. Rabbis offering a rule or a precedent to every conceivable scenario. But there's more. Those lists did not settle the debate regarding Sabbath prohibitions, and the religious leaders enjoyed bantering about this topic more than any other. But the problem was, Jesus refused to debate them. He brushes off their complex list of Sabbath prohibitions by quoting Scripture and providing general principles and leaving it at that. And this communicated to the Pharisees that he did not have time for their ridiculous debates centered upon, listen to this, what God's Word did not explicitly command. Jesus refused to play their games and instead used these Sabbath controversies as an opportunity to expose their dead traditionalism. Because after all, they did not know what they were talking about. Jesus said they were the blind leading the blind, and Jesus said, let them alone. The blind will lead the blind, and they will both fall into a pit. I'm not going to get involved in those controversies, Jesus said. Jesus came to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Remember that in chapter 1, verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then again, verse 35 of chapter 1, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They found him. They said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I might preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus came to preach the gospel and to set people free from such legalistic practices as Sabbath observance. He came to set the record straight. He came to set the truth straight. Jesus would say in John chapter 8, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. But the Jews were not free under all of the Sabbath prohibitions. It was a day of bondage. And by Jesus declaring Himself Lord even of the Sabbath... He was assaulting the religious establishment by cutting their legs out from underneath them. They used Sabbath observance as a stage to parade around their religious zeal and commitment to God, showing everyone how obedient they were and how disobedient everyone else was. They elevated the fourth commandment over all of the other commandments and said that to the degree that you honored the Sabbath was to the degree that you were spiritual. It was a test case for spirituality. And in effect, they turned God's intended purpose of the Sabbath, which was for it to be a blessing, they turned it into a burden. Instead of resting and enjoying the gift of the Sabbath, the Pharisees led the Jews to violate the Sabbath because through all of their rules, they made the Jews work harder on that day of the week than any other day of the week, laboring to keep track of all the regulations, all the restrictions, all the prohibitions, while also keeping tabs on the activities of their wives and their children and their livestock and their servants. It was a day of burden, not blessing. The Pharisees thought they were holy by observing it. Jesus said, you're hypocrites because of the way that you observe it, perverting the law of God. Now, before we get into our actual text, I understand the introduction is somewhat lengthy, but I want you to turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5 because this is a very important passage that explains to us what is behind Sabbath observance. God wants wanted Israel to honor the Sabbath as a reminder to God's people that He was their Creator. 
he rested on the Sabbath day. But there's another reason. Deuteronomy chapter 5, and pick up with me in verse 12. Moses writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you." You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. It was not merely that they were to keep the Sabbath day to remember that God was their creator. They were to keep the Sabbath day as well to remember that God was their Redeemer. He was the one that delivered them with an outstretched hand. And that's why he says at the end of verse 15, Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. You once were in bondage in Egypt, but I have delivered you from that bondage. Honor the Sabbath to be reminded of my grace and my deliverance of you. But the Sabbath regulations added to Scripture by the Pharisees, forced the Jews back into bondage one day a week. Every week, instead of being reminded of God's grace and His provision of delivering them from their Egyptian bondage, they were in slavery to an endless list of petty religious requirements that were man-engineered. It is no wonder that by the time Jesus came on the scene, Judaism was essentially apostate, And the best and most conservative teachers of the day were the Pharisees, but they taught works-oriented salvation. Generations of Sabbath observance made them lose sight of God's salvation. They were focused on themselves. They were focused on rules and regulations, and they missed Christ when He came and crucified the Savior that was sent to them. And that's why Jesus was hated. Because he made it clear that all of their obedience would never garner acceptance with God. They hated him because of the free grace he offered through his obedience in their place. They were full of religious pride and hatred. And it was rooted in the fact that they did not think Jesus observed the Sabbath the way that they wanted him to. So in our study of these next two accounts... We're going, to consider what this, we're going to consider what this means for us today. And we want to begin by looking at verses 23 through 28, where we see Jesus declare here in Mark chapter 2 that He is Lord even of the Sabbath. Verse 28, so the Son of Man, Jesus says, is Lord even of the Sabbath. We want to consider this morning and this evening what exactly that means. What does it mean to say that Jesus is Lord even of the Sabbath? Well, to answer that, I want to point out to you four observations of this event that shed light on answering that question. The first observation I want you to note with me is found in verse 23. It's the cited action. The cited action. Notice verse 23. One Sabbath, Mark writes... He, that is Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Now, the general language of this verse makes it rather difficult to determine exactly when this took place. We don't really know. Matthew's Gospel tells us that after Jesus answered the fasting question, which we looked at last week, that he raised the synagogue official's daughter from the dead, and then the woman suffering from the issue of blood touched the hem of his garment and was healed. And then that's when this incident occurred on the Sabbath. Mark doesn't mention these events. Mark is more brief. brief, And Luke doesn't mention these events because Mark and Luke are not as concerned about the timeline of events as they are about the topics under consideration. Mark in particular is interested in the drama and controversy has been, been raising and escalating at this point, one event after another. We saw last week them questioning Jesus's, Jesus about why he didn't have the disciples fast. And Jesus answered that question. And so now it moves from fasting to 
feasting to now this, this issue of Sabbath observance. We know this took place on the Sabbath. Mark points that out. We also know Matthew 12.1 says, His disciples were hungry, and that's why they began to pluck heads of grain to eat grain. Mark simply says, verse 23, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they, with the disciples, made their way, His disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Heads of grain were likely that of wheat and barley. Wheat and barley... <coughs> being ripened between the time period of April and August, so this was spring or summertime. It was lawfully permissible, by the way, for Jews to do this, to walk through another field as you traveled. In fact, there didn't exist an intricate road system, and so particularly if you were walking in the country, you would have to pass through another field. But we also read in Deuteronomy 23.25 that it was not only permissible to walk through a field, we also read this, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hands, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Deuteronomy 23.25. So in other words, one could walk through a field, one could walk through another's field and pick a handful of grain and eat it, and you could even do this on the Sabbath. There was nothing in Scripture that said you couldn't do it on the Sabbath. You just could not take a sickle in your hand and start harvesting. That was in violation of the Sabbath. Mark, as I said, is brief, but Luke gives more detail. He says they picked heads of grain, and they were rubbing the grain in their hands and eating it. This means they were removing the husk and the shell in order to eat the kernel. Now, here's the point to see. Jesus and the disciples were doing absolutely nothing wrong from a biblical standpoint. That's the thing to see. But most people in their day, influenced by the scribes and the Pharisees, would have thought that they were in grave violation of Sabbath observance. But we move from the cited action, verse 23 Number two, to the self-righteous accusation. Verse 24, the Pharisees approached Jesus and they were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Mark is pretty short in his description. Luke in Luke 6.2 says that not only Jesus was questioned, but the disciples were questioned regarding their actions. In fact, just turn with me over there to to Luke chapter 6 and verse 2, just so that you can see this. It says, some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Verse 1, while Jesus is going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So Mark says, they asked Jesus why he was allowing this. Luke says, They asked the disciples, and Matthew sheds even more light because Matthew says they made the accusation. Look, your disciples are not doing what is lawful on the Sabbath. Now, none of the gospel writers contradict themselves. When you put all of this together, what you see here is the Pharisees were following Jesus and the disciples, trying to catch them doing something wrong on the Sabbath, trying to catch them doing something not permissible. They would have done better searching the sin in their own hearts instead of searching out Jesus and the disciples. But as they dogged their steps, the Pharisees began harassing probably first the disciples, why are you doing this? Then they didn't get an answer, so they went to Jesus, why are you doing this? You're doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And after all that harassing and Jesus and the disciples ignoring them, then they stopped asking the questions, and as Matthew says, they made the accusation, look, you are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. You are in sin. How exactly were they violating the Sabbath? Well, according to the tradition of the elders, Mark doesn't say, what the charges are, what the violations are, what the citation was for, but it's not hard to guess. There were probably several violations they had in their minds. Remember, the rabbis listed 39 prohibitions. And under these 39 principal prohibitions 
of what you could and could not do on the Sabbath were a catalog of explanations under each principle. And these 39 were subdivided into another six categories so that something like another 39 principles were listed under the other six categories. This, in effect, buried the true law of God regarding the Sabbath under the debris of man-made traditions. Nevertheless, we can imagine the infractions. What were they? Well, you are guilty of reaping. Why? Because you're picking grain. Secondly, you're guilty of sifting. Why? Because you remove the husks in the shell. Third, you're guilty of threshing. You're rubbing it in your hands. You're threshing. Fourth, you're winnowing. You have to do something with the chaff. You're throwing it in the wind. You're winnowing. You're reaping. You're sifting. You're threshing. You're winnowing. And after all of that, you're preparing a meal. You're not supposed to do those things on the Sabbath. Reaping, sifting, threshing, winnowing, preparing a meal. Maybe they quoted Exodus 34, 21. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest time you shall rest. You are working the fields with deep labor. Because after all, harvesting on the Sabbath was strictly forbidden. This was an agrarian culture. If you wanted to make a living, you worked. And if you wanted to make a good living, you worked hard in the fields. And you raised a crop. Working the fields was hardly the same thing as picking a vegetable out of your little garden on a Sunday afternoon. And so hardly did the disciples violate the Sabbath. They probably didn't even break a sweat as they walked and didn't even stop and grabbed grain to eat it. But in addition to the false accusation of Jesus allowing the disciples to work, the Pharisees probably also accused them of walking too many steps because after all, the rabbis limited a Sabbath day's journey to 1,000 999 steps. That equals out to about half a mile. If you took 2,000 steps, one step over the 1,999, you were a Sabbath breaker. One cannot help but notice the fastidiousness that resulted in ridiculousness on the part of the petty Pharisees regarding a Sabbath day's journey. Because can we at least raise the question that if the scribes and Pharisees were following Jesus and the disciples, that they were walking just as many steps as they were? It's like the pot calling the kettle black, religious hypocrites. Many rabbis created laws to circumvent the ones they deemed inconvenient. Let me give you a couple of examples. Alfred Edersheim and his great work on this says that in order to travel beyond the prescribed 1,999 steps, a rope or a piece of wood would be placed outside one's residence across a road. Such was considered a doorway and thus part of one's home so that the 1,999 steps could begin there. In modern Jewish times, Jewish neighborhoods sometimes connect the rows of their houses with a piece of rope going from one window to the next so that it's considered one home and you can walk all the way to the end no matter how many miles it is and then at that point your 1,999 steps begin. Effectively removing the restrictions. That's always what legalism does, isn't it? If you don't have an explicit word from Scripture about Christian behavior, then it's probably best you keep your mouth shut. The Pharisees didn't care The disciples had left all their well-paying jobs, successful businessmen, fishermen, tax collectors. They were hungry and doing ministry on the Sabbath. Probably coming from the synagogue. Maybe going to another synagogue for Jesus to preach. Who knows? Certainly they were permitted to eat handfuls of grain. But you see, legalism always produces a lack of love, a lack of mercy, a lack of grace toward others. The rabbis would follow the Mishnah. They were so concerned about Sabbath breaking that one was expected not to even begin a project if it was going to leak into the Sabbath. From sunset Friday to sunset Saturday, 
one could do absolutely nothing. Nothing, that is, according to what the Pharisees said. Such prohibitions included things like this. You couldn't tie or loosen a knot on the Sabbath. You could sew, but you couldn't sew more than one stitch. You could write, but you couldn't write more than one letter. You could take steps, but not more than 1,999. You could not set a dislocated foot or hand. You could not repair a fallen roof. In fact, if a building fell down on a Sabbath, one could remove the rubble just enough to see if the victims were alive. Those remaining alive could be removed, but if dead, the corpses were left until sunset. Sabbath observance serves as a fine example of legalism. To borrow the words of Jesus, legalism can always be defined. How do you know legalism when you see it? Are you ready for it? Here it is, really simple. I'll just quote from the words of Jesus. Legalism neglects the commandment of God and holds to the tradition of men instead. Legalism sets aside the commandment of God in order to keep your own tradition. Legalism invalidates the Word of God by tradition handed down. Legalism transgresses the commandment of God for the sake of tradition. Legalism neglects the weightier provisions of the law, like justice, mercy, and faithfulness, and prides oneself in following religious details. Legalism strains gnats and swallows camels. And for his part, Jesus would only escalate this conflict with the religious leaders by exposing them just as he did before. Remember Jesus last time, if you look with me, in chapter 2, in verse 18, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Suppose Jesus could have walked away. He could have said, let me give you a a simple illustration. Um, I'm the Messiah. I've come. This is a time of joy. That's why they're not fasting. He didn't do that. He said in verse 19, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. He borrows Old Testament imagery, as you remember last time, to say, I am the bridegroom. These disciples are my groomsmen. The kingdom of God has come. The wedding feast has started, and you've been left out because you're fasting and you're not feasting. I suppose he could have stopped there too, right? Maybe that was enough, but he didn't. He says in verse 21, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. In other words, at this wedding, there is is a garment that is to be worn for the kingdom of God. You're trying to get into the wedding with an old garment. And you're trying to sew a new patch onto an old garment. You want a little bit of me but you want your legalism with it and you're trying to come into the wedding. You're no longer invited. He could have stopped there, but he didn't. Verse 22, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins, but the new wine is for fresh wineskins. At this wedding, as all weddings have, plentiful wine. You remember the first miracle Jesus performed was turning water into wine. The wine representative of the Holy Spirit. The brittle wineskins representative of the Pharisees who could not hold the gospel because they were full of so much legalism and man-made tradition. There is nothing after that. Apparently the Pharisees walked away until the next occasion. They had nothing to say. My point, beloved, is that Jesus refused to back down, he would make a point. And when he made a point, you knew he was making a point. And he was clear about what he said. Jesus did not make political statements. Jesus was not offended or worried about who he would offend. Because true love cares for those we speak the gospel to. And truly loving them means we speak the truth to them. 
as harsh as it may be. And the one thing that caused more hatred in the hearts of the religious leaders more than anything was the fact they did not think Jesus understood the Sabbath. And my dear friends, the greatest threat to the church today is any sort of similar legalism that adds to the law of God or that says obedience to the law of God will gain you some special favor with God. Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, all of your religious zeal will lead you to one place and that place is called hell. It will not lead you to heaven. He would say on another occasion, where I go, you cannot follow me. I am going back to the Father. You're not going there. Which means you're going somewhere else. You're going to hell. Jesus, and this is where we see the drama of this event, does not apologize for his actions. We move from the cited action, verse 23, and the self-righteous accusation, verse 24, to the scriptural answer in verses 25 through 27. And there are two parts to this scriptural answer. Remember, Jesus never did anything halfway. They came to him and asked him a question, and now they're going to listen to his response. And it's thoroughly scriptural. It's not based upon opinion. It's not based upon tradition. It's based upon theology. It's based upon the Word of God. He is the Son of God. He is the Word incarnate. And what He says, He says with authority. And what He says is the final authority regarding the fourth commandment. This scriptural answer comes with a scriptural illustration and it's followed by a scriptural implication. Notice with me first in the scriptural answer, the scriptural illustration. Verse 25. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? Jesus responds by saying, notice your Bibles, have you never read? Now Jesus could have responded differently. He could have simply quoted this incident as he did without putting in that little remark. But that cut to the quick, didn't it? And in fact, Jesus was asking, how can you pride yourselves and knowing the law of God and being great teachers of the law of God and not be aware of this event in the life of David where ceremonial restrictions regarding the Sabbath were set aside due to circumstances? Oh, in reality, they were aware of this story. Jesus is not pointing out their ignorance, but what He is pointing out, He is highlighting the fact that their traditions about the Sabbath kept this event buried under the rubble of their rule-keeping. They conveniently ignored this little story to serve their own purposes, but they knew it was there. And his point is simply this. If you would just read your Bible, instead of obsessing over man-made ways to honor the Sabbath, then all your questions would be answered. He's saying, in effect, if you know the Scriptures so well, then surely you're familiar with this event, and if you're familiar with this event, then how can you continue holding to your Sabbath rules and regulations? Have you never read? Let's turn to 1 Samuel 21, because that is the incident that Jesus references. 1 Samuel 21. If they carried scrolls around back then, I imagine Jesus telling them to pull out their scrolls and open their Bibles. So we'll turn there. 1 Samuel 21, verse 1, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. 
And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us. As always, when I go on expedition, the vassals of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary um, journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Jesus references this instance to ask this simple question. Had not David entered God's house and eaten bread, which was only to be eaten by the priests? There's a lot going on here. This event in David's life took place when he and his men were fugitives running from King Saul. God's hand of protection was on them. God's hand of protection was leading them and guiding them. Read the Psalms. You'll understand that God was on David's side. David was not the enemy. David and his men are hungry. They entered the house of God. That is the tabernacle. It was located at Nob at that point in Israel's history. And there they found the priest And there they found the consecrated bread of presence on the table of showbread. Twelve loaves set there. This table we read in the book of Exodus was three feet long. It was one and a half feet wide. It was two feet, three inches high. It was overlaid with pure gold. And on each corner of this table were gold rings through which poles could be slid so the table could be carried. It was a holy table. The bread was considered holy. And this holy table with this holy bread was located in the holy place just outside of the holy of holies. David was standing, therefore, mark it, on holy ground. And as he looked at that bread, Lined out, two even rows, six loaves this way, six loaves of bread this way. He agreed with the priest that it would be okay, even though it violated God's ceremonial law that that bread was only for the priests, that David and his men could eat it. Not only did David eat it, but his men ate it. That bread symbolized Israel's table fellowship with God. The priests were the mediators of that table fellowship. And so each Sabbath, Leviticus 24.8 is clear. Let me just read it to you. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange the bread before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. And so each Sabbath... The old bread was removed, hot bread replaced it, the old bread was eaten, but only by the priests. On this occasion, David and his band of brothers ate that bread, and neither Ahimelech nor David were punished by God. God allowed a ceremonial law to be breached so that the urgent hunger of David and his men could be met. Now here's the point. That holy bread was exchanged on the Sabbath day. We don't know what day David ate the bread. But Jesus is using this illustration not necessarily, and this is important to understand, because he ate it on the Sabbath day, the text does not say, I believe he did eat it on the Sabbath day, but I can't prove that from the Bible, so I don't want to follow my man-made tradition. But regardless of what day it was on, the point doesn't so much have to do with the day, That's thrown in there because it surrounds activities that happened on the Sabbath. The point has to do with consecrated items. The Sabbath was a holy day. The bread was holy. It was holy. God simply calls the Sabbath in Isaiah 58, my holy day. Exodus 35 says, six days you shall... You shall work, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Deuteronomy 5.12, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The issue is holiness. David ate holy bread on holy ground from a holy table in a holy place by the holy of holies that was only meant for the holy priests. And here's the point. If a human priest along with a human king, namely David, has a right to ignore God-established laws. 
to meet a human need, then Jesus has every right as the King of kings and the Lord of lords to violate man-made restrictions on the Sabbath so his disciples can eat. That's the point. I think that this sort of response left the Pharisees dumbfounded and silent. Because here, Jesus placed before them a scriptural illustration. I think likely it did take place on the Sabbath. David was in the temple in a place he probably shouldn't have been. According to the law, he ate bread that was put there on the Sabbath for the priests. He ate it, his men ate it. An illustration of human beings violating ceremonial aspects of the law, God being okay with that because, listen to this, the principle of God's law was not violated. There was a need on this day. There was a need on this day. Ahimelech saw the need, and he met the need of David's hungry men. Just as Jesus saw the need of the disciples, and they ate, and they were filled Now, that's the scriptural illustration. Before we move on to the scriptural implication from verse 27, I want to make a clarification. Some have tried to make it look like scripture contradicts itself because Jesus says, notice your Bibles, that this event took place in the time of Abiathar, the high priest. 1 Samuel 21 says, that Ahimelech was the high priest. So does Jesus not understand his Bible? Well, when I come across apparent contradictions, and I say apparent contradictions in Scripture, I always think back to my undergraduate days and my Old Testament professor where he would spend whole class days going over passages like this to show that there were no contradictions in the Bible. And I can't remember for the life of me what he said about this particular event. But I think our own research can help clarify things. First of all, notice that Jesus in this passage does not say that Abiathar was the high priest. He says that this took place in the time of Abiathar the high priest. And second, while it's true that Ahimelech was the high priest that the day that David entered the temple and ate the showbread, it's also true when we read other places in the Old Testament, such as 1 Samuel 22, that there was an entire family of priests that resided at Nob. In fact, there's more to the story. When King Saul received word that Ahimelech not only gave David and his men bread to eat, but that he also gave David Goliath's sword to defend himself, Saul was so angry that he sent Doeg, the Edomite, to slaughter 85 priests of that particular family. We read about this. 1 Samuel 22, Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest. He killed 85 persons who were living or who were wearing the linen ephod, that is the priests. But then we read this. But one of the sons of Ahimelech named Abiathar escaped and fled for David. This Abiathar did become the high priest. He served in that capacity along with Zadok during David's life. So Abiathar was there when David ate that bread. Abiathar was a priest and he later became the high priest. And Jesus is simply saying that this occurred in the time of Abiathar probably because everyone knew who he was. He was one of the only priests that escaped and he became the high priest. And Jesus is using it as shorthand to help identify the historical time period. There are no contradictions in the Bible. There are always explanations. Recently, I I shared this with some of you. I read a biography of one of my great-great-uncles who was a Confederate officer during the Civil War. After the war, he was called Colonel Smith. He was a wild guy. He wasn't someone that you would particularly be friends with unless you wanted to get in trouble The governor of West Virginia knew who he was, and he was a very colorful character. But the author of this book speaks about my uncle, and he calls him Colonel Smith in describing events that took place when my uncle was a little boy, before he ever entered the war. 
before he was ever known as Colonel Smith. Well, the author's not being inaccurate. He's simply calling him Colonel Smith because that's how everyone knew him. In the same way, Abiathar wasn't priest on the day that David went into the tabernacle, but he was certainly a priest in the day of David, in that time period. I bring all of this up because apparent discrepancies in the Bible can always be explained away. And not only that, but probably more to the point. Man-made regulations about the Sabbath always contradict themselves. But the Scriptures never do. The Scriptures never do. The Pharisees would have walked just as many steps as Jesus and the disciples. But it was convenient for them to point out that Jesus and the disciples were working on the Sabbath and walking too many steps. Legalism always produces hypocrisy. It's better to stand on the Scriptures. That's where Jesus stood. And He gave a scriptural illustration. But now we come to the scriptural implication. What is the implication to Jesus' answer? Well, notice your Bibles in verse 27. After giving the illustration, Jesus gives the implication, and He said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, if you go back and read Genesis 2, you understand that, right? What happened first? God resting on the seventh day or God creating man? God created man first. The Sabbath was created second for the man. That's what Jesus is saying. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And because of that, what Jesus is saying is that God never wants ceremonies, rituals, traditions to be used as an excuse not to show mercy, grace, kindness and goodness toward others, even if it is on the Sabbath. Ahimelech honored God by feeding David and his men the bread. And he paid for that. He was slaughtered by Saul, but God honored him. And Jesus is allowing the disciples to eat grain on the Sabbath. It was more than reasonable. A human need was being met. You see, the Pharisees were perverting the purpose of the Sabbath. That's what man-made traditions And legalism and going beyond Scripture always does. It causes people to love following rules more than loving other people. In fact, there's an example of Jesus pointing this out. You don't have to turn there. But Jesus said to the religious leaders on one occasion, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God then you are no longer permitted to give anything for your father and mother. Jesus says, Thus you make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. I'm sorry I tithed all my money to the synagogue. I can't help you, Mom. can't help you, Dad. Such legalism causes you to not love others, but to love yourself and to love what others think about you because you want others to think you are spiritual. Such is sinful. And I can think of no other example more in the Christian church of how Christians try to show their superiority than by speaking about the Lord's Day in manners that go beyond what the Scriptures say. Jesus would say, in Matthew's account of this, a very, this very occasion, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, quoting from the Old Testament, you would have not condemned the guiltless. In other words, you wouldn't have come up to my disciples and said they're condemned and guilty if you had mercy in your heart. You understood they were hungry. They're not violating anything. No, the real violators of the Sabbath were the Pharisees. They were guilty of making people labor hard to avoid all the listed restrictions. Such took far more work than just enjoying the Sabbath as a gift from God to rest. No, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Pharisees' ridiculous man-engineered Sabbath requirements reversed that axiom of verse 27. Instead of seeing the Sabbath made for man, they viewed man made for the sake of the Sabbath. And there's a world of difference 
in those two things. The Sabbath day is a holy day set apart to make man hopeful, to make man happy, to make man healthy, to make man helpful. Deeds of mercy are honorable and commendable, especially on the Christian Sabbath of the New Covenant, the Lord's Day. You know, many Christians are employed in the medical field and they have to work on Sundays. Other Christians can't legitimately avoid their jobs because if they did, they would violate another passage of Scripture which says you're worse than an infidel if you don't provide for your own. The Old Testament is clear. The Sabbath is to be a blessing, not a burden. And in the New Covenant, it is meant to help you be more holy. It is also meant to make you happy in the Lord, in Christ. It is also meant to make you healthy because as you rest that day and you don't do certain things that maybe you would normally do on other days, you don't do on that day, you're giving your body rest, you're giving your mind rest. It's a gift from God to you. But it is not meant to be filled with worry about restrictions and prohibitions because when you do that, you're working. You're not resting. It's meant to be a special blessing, never intended to restrict your life with endless rules. Following endless rules is exhausting. It violates the very principle of the Sabbath. This is what R.C. Sproul says, and I quote, Jesus' point in saying the Sabbath was made for man was that it is a gift from God to His people, a gift to keep them from wearing out their bodies, their animals, their servants, their fields, However, the rabbinic traditions had turned the Sabbath from a great gift to a laborious burden. People had to take great care not to overstep the boundaries the rabbis set. So true. You know, before each soccer season, St. John's County, along with the soccer club I coach for, spends thousands of dollars preparing the soccer fields thousands of dollars. And when you go out to the soccer fields during preseason, we're always very, very careful. Lush green grass, very new, fresh, any sort of repetitive footwork, drills are to be done in between the fields on the sidelines and those small spaces. And that's reasonable. It's not unnecessarily restrictive because the fields are for game days so that things look good. They're being preserved for game days. Where the Pharisees were like legalistic groundskeepers, they wouldn't allow people to enjoy the Sabbath. Their man-made restrictions sideline God's people to have to work in between tight boundaries. They could never enjoy game day. They could never enjoy the Sabbath. It wasn't a day of joy. It was a day of drudgery. It wasn't a day of blessing. It was a burden. But the Sabbath was meant to be preserved so that it could be enjoyed. It was a day of delight for the people of God to reflect upon the goodness of God and the grace of God. And my dear friends, we're talking about the Sabbath, that is Saturday of the Old Covenant, but in principle, everything that we're saying translates into the New Covenant and the Christian Sabbath and the Lord's Day and sometimes how we can teeter on legalism if we are not careful. Speaking of that, it is Easter today, isn't it? What does the Bible say about that? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. You thought I forgot it was Easter. I didn't. Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If 
With Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The one Sunday a year that non-Christians go to church is Easter. The one Sunday in the year in which Christians would say is a holy day would be Easter. Beloved, we need to be very careful when it comes to holy days because of what Paul just said in Colossians chapter 2. All of this can be used as a test case for spirituality. Has it ever occurred to you that every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday? What does the church communicate when one day a year they celebrate the resurrection and not the other Sundays of the year? As Christians, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, is the day we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. We live out, we begin our week living out our new life that we have in Christ. And as such, this day is to be a day of blessing and a day of joy. A day in which we are happy, we are holy, we are helpful, we serve one another, we rejoice that Christ is our King. But there is not one day that is more holy than another day. We need to be very, very careful. Because if we are not, we will fall into the same trap of the Pharisees. Now, we've seen the cited action, verse 23. The self-righteous accusation, verse 24. The scriptural answer, verses 25 through 27. And now we come to verse 28. R.C. Sproul refers to this as the bombshell verse. I call it the stunning apex. Notice verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That's it. You cannot understand the fourth commandment apart from understanding this verse. You cannot understand this passage without understanding this verse. But you'll have to wait until tonight to understand exactly what that means. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the Scriptures and we're grateful for the Lord's Day. We understand history. We understand the Bible. We recognize the principle of one day and seven being honored. We have come to honor this day as a holy day. We've come to honor Christ. Lord, we we don't come pretending to be what we're not. We come confessing our sins. We come to partake of the Lord's Supper, which is, again, a confession of the fact that we need Christ. Lord, we pray as we partake of this table that you would help us to be mindful of all the things that we've discussed this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.